if you're here tonight and you are a Christian person, uh, you have probably asked yourself this question, why is it so difficult to be a faithful and consistent follower of Jesus? Like, if God wants me to, like, be like Jesus and to, you know, sort of put away sin and take on godliness, why doesn't that feel more natural? Does that question make sense? Like, why does it feel so unnatural and weird and hard to do that? And John, who wrote the book of Revelation, gives us this vision tonight of this person, and this person helps us understand why it's so hard to follow Jesus. Okay? You with me? Cool? Let's read the passage. Uh, It's on your handout. If you don't have a Bible, you can um, grab one from the back table. They're free. You don't even have to ask. Uh, Don't ask, because then it's kind of weird if you do ask. Okay. Um, Revelation 17 and 18, and we're not going to read both chapters just because we'd be here for a long time. So I took a couple passages that sort of give us the gist. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others, and repay her double for her deeds, and mix a double portion for her cup, for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like a measure of torment. Give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Uh, It's God's word. I think it's probably pretty clear that we need his help to understand it, so let's ask him for his blessing. Uh, Father, we're we're grateful for your word, and uh, even when it's hard or strange or intense, uh, we know that you are working through it um, to show us Jesus. And whether we're here tonight and we really have a, a felt sense that we need Jesus or we're not sure why we're here or, um, or we feel very hardened against uh, these things, 
Um, we, you know what we need. And so would you speak to us by your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question for us tonight is, um, why is it such, so difficult or so challenging to be a follower of Jesus? Um, why, is it, why is it so hard to um, live the way that Jesus wants us to live? And to understand that, we have to look at this, this woman, this prostitute named Babylon. And basically, this is what I want to do. I want to spend some time going through the passage and just seeing who does this passage say that this person is, and then see what bearing that has for us in answering that question. And I want to look at what is her name, what is her occupation, who are her customers, and what is she drinking, okay? Her name, her occupation, her customers, and what's she drinking? Um, her name. Look in verse 5. Uh, there's a lot of people writing names on foreheads in Revelation, which is weird. But um, it says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. Now, in the Bible, the, the city of Babylon is shorthand for um, a city that is built on what we would call worldliness. Um, Actually, it goes on to say in, in verse 18 that, that uh, Babylon is a city, right? And in Revelation and all throughout the Bible, the city of what we would call humanity, where humanity is at the center of the city, is Babylon. That's what's sort of embodied there. And the city where God is at the center of the city is called Jerusalem. And we'll see in a couple of weeks the new Jerusalem. Um, if you think about some cities are just known for certain things, like Charlotte is known for banking, Right? Oh, for NASCAR. Um, I guess that's Mooresville is known for NASCAR. Um, if you think about the city we live in, the town of Boone, uh, it's in the same location pretty much as the town of Blowing Rock, right? We're in the same geographic place, we're on the same mountains. But the two towns have different things, right? At the center of Boone is App State. And everything about Boone is sort of App State-ness. At the center of Blowing Rock is like tourism, right? Or retirement, uh, wealth, right? Um, <laughs> Being not in college age, right? Um, and so tourismness is sort of what radiates out from Blowing Rock. In Babylon, you have humanity at the center where the way that human beings think and feel is sort of the center of, of life. And in Jerusalem, you have what God thinks and feels and says is the center of life. So Babylon is worldliness. It is the opposite or the antithesis to godliness. Does that make sense? Um, the act of putting human desires and thought at the center of life. That's what Babylon is, worldliness. What is her occupation? Well, verse 1 says, uh, she is a prostitute. Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Um, now, in verse 5, she's actually the mother of prostitutes. She produces more prostitutes. Now, she's a woman, but this is... This is not a lessening of, of women. Sometimes I think there's a sentiment that the Bible or the Christian faith is sort of demeaning to women or it's hard on women or, or it, it lessens uh, women. Um, we could talk about that. I would love to talk about that with you if that's something that uh, you, you want to sort of work through together and process together. I'd love that. Um, but just two thoughts on that since we don't have a lot of time. First is the Bible acknowledges that the reason why female prostitution exists it's because of the unchecked desires of men, mostly. Okay? So it's because of men, pretty much, that prostitutes exist in the first place. But secondly, Babylon is sort of the embodiment in this passage of worldliness and things that are wrong in the world. But the embodiment of all that is pure and beautiful and right, God's people in Revelation, 
is what's called his bride. Okay? Um, this is a prostitute, but God's people is a pure bride. Both are women. And actually, God's people, men and women, are summarized as a perfect, radiant, beautiful woman. Right? So it, it's hard to look at this passage and go, this is demeaning women, because actually the climax and where all God's people are going and where we're going to end up and what's beautiful about humanity is that we end up a woman, a bride. It's, um, just food for thought. But she's a prostitute with whom the kings of the world have committed sexual immorality, it says. And uh, reading through this passage, there's a lot of like the word sexual immorality, <laughs> uh, which is not a word that we use a lot, just out on campus, I don't think. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should more. I don't know. Um, uh, why is God so emphatic in Revelation, and actually throughout the Bible, about what we do with our sex, about what we do with our sexuality? Um, why is this such a sticking point? Almost every time the Bible talks about sin, it will mention sex, like sexual immorality as part of that, the misuse of sex. The reason why the Bible is so emphatic about sex is not because God is anti-sex. Actually, the reason why the Bible is so emphatic about sexuality is because God is so pro-sex. Like, sex is such a good thing in God's economy that the misuse of it is very upsetting to him. Some of the best language we have in the Bible about what does it look like for us to relate to God is highly sexual, very intimate sexual language. If you don't believe me, go home tonight um, and read the book of Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, as sometimes it's called in the Bible, which is... It's a love poem, a very sexual love poem between newlyweds. And it's supposed to be a metaphor for our relationship with God, that he desires this deep intimacy with his people. God, it is precisely because sex is good, not evil, that God is so emphatic about how we use sex. God is not some like aloof judge that just wants to tell you that you can't have all this kinds of sex that you want. Um, but he's actually a passionate lover, who has created sex as such a good thing that is supposed to, to show us how he relates to us uh, and to help teach our hearts about his love. That's what sex is. And Babylon, this prostitute, she comes in and she taps into that desire. The desire that we all have sexually, sort of, it comes from our desire to be connected to God. And she's very enticing. Look, at, look in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's not repulsive. She's not, sometimes if you drive through a city and you see prostitutes at work, you say like, this is not super enticing. They're obviously living a very difficult life. This woman is beautiful and, and sensual. And because she wants to arouse the passions of the people that, that she's uh, interacting with. And she says, here, take pleasure. I'm, I'm good. I'm right. I smell good. I look good. Um, come lay with me. And like anywhere throughout the world where there's prostitution, whether it's seen as good or evil, um, engaging in prostitution always, engage, always involves some kind of high-risk behavior, right? Things that you wouldn't normally do. So Babylon is a prostitute. She wants us to come and take pleasure for ourselves in worldliness. Who were her customers? Look in verse 15. We're just, we're just building a summary here, and we'll bring it down to us in a second. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Basically, all that means is this prostitute's customers are all people throughout, not just in America, not just like in the Middle East or somewhere far away. 
But all people throughout all time have been seduced by worldliness, religious people and non-religious people. And what's she drinking? Of course, because that's what you need to know. Um, they always say, like, in, from my home state, like, uh, if you're from Macon, Georgia, they, they ask, where do you go to church? And if you're from Savannah, Georgia, they ask, what are you drinking? Right? Um, which is what's beautiful about Savannah. And anyway, take that for what you will. Um, look at verse 4. What's she drinking? She's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She has a drink, and in verse 2 says that, that the kings of the earth who have committed sexuality, they become drunk on her wine. It's this beautiful golden cup, but it's full of sexual immorality and abominations, and people become drunk on it. Why does she want people to become drunk on it? Um, when you're drunk, anything f- seems plausible. Um, you, you may have experienced this yourself, or your friend in the dorm has experienced this, and you watched them do it. Um, but when you're drunk, like nothing really seems that bad. It seems like I could jump that, you know. Uh, like I could get out of the car while it's still moving a little bit. Um, it all seems sort of funny, and like not like it's not a big deal. You know this if you've ever been a, a designated driver at a party, um, and your friend is like getting ready to go home with with this guy and you're like if they were sober this would literally never ever be happening and they're engaging in some significantly high risk behavior and when you try to step in and be like hey you probably aren't going to want to have this happen in the morning um they just like when you try to step in and love them it's like you're harshing their buzz like everything seems fine like it's okay this is normal it's fine why are you being so weird why are you being so intense um and that's what the 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 prostitute babylon is trying to do she's trying to say this sexual immorality and this luxurious living that she's talking about are normal okay this is where we're starting to come down from the high from the heights down to where this meets us she's saying it's normal to seek pleasure and it is normal to seek comfort. And it's not a big deal, and you deserve it. Come, lay with me, take pleasure. Um, I experienced this when I was a freshman, and I moved into my dorm, and then like three days later, I wasn't, not, I wasn't a Christian, and so this stuff theoretically wouldn't have bothered me. But I remember coming back from class, like my second day of class, and my roommate and like six other dudes from our floor were like, this was the, like in the, like sort of the, the early days of internet porn, um, and they were like all huddled around the computer, like watching like hardcore porn. And I just walked in like, hey, like put my bag down. And I was like, just these dudes, like they don't even really know each other. They're just like all around, like smiling like, with their arms around each other's shoulders. And I was just thinking like, maybe, I don't know if you've had that experience. It feels like porn is much more like individualized now. Like, um, and I just thought to myself in that moment, like, this is really weird. <laughs> like, this is not normal behavior where, like, a bunch of dudes are watching two people have, like, really intense sex on the screen. This is not something that, like, we should be sharing, like, in a really casual, I just met you, let's watch porn <laughs> kind of way. Um, Babylon likes to normalize material for us. And here's, here's where that all comes together in a summary statement. Every person in the world is seduced by worldliness into believing that sin is normal. Okay? 
every person in the world, to put all that stuff together, every person in the world is seduced by worldliness into believing that self-gratifying sin is normal. Particularly that pleasure and comfort are normal. Seeking pleasure and seeking comfort. And that denying yourself and sacrificing yourself are weird. Does that make sense? Um, That pleasure-seeking, comfort-seeking are are normal and denying yourself and sacrificing yourself are weird. And this maybe feels a little strange to you now, but uh, I'm only like 10 years older than a lot of you. But in, in my stage of life, I already have many friends that have committed adultery. And um, some of you guys have experienced the pain of that with your parents or family member. And um, this is someone that's like cheated on their husband or on their wife. And every time that I've known someone that has committed adultery, they have said something like, um, my spouse just is not loving me and giving me what I need anymore. And they will say something like, this other person, finally, they understand me. Like, they touch me in ways that, like, my husband just never could ever touch me. Or, like, she looks at me in a way that I just, no one's ever looked at me like that before. And they actually become drunk in their soul on this other lover. And they start to believe that engaging in super destructive, like destroy your family type behavior is like normal and okay because it's going to make them happy. Okay? The reason why it is so hard for you and for me to be a faithful follower of Jesus is because you have a spouse and his name is Jesus and you have another lover and your heart is torn in two because you can't figure out which one of them is really going to make you happy. Um, And in your bad moments, you think Babylon, worldliness, is going to make you happier than Jesus. So, of course, it's hard. I want you to, like, if you don't leave with anything else, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear, of course, it is extremely difficult to follow Jesus. Um, Because your heart believes other things are going to make you happy. But, Jesus, because he is a husband that loves you desperately calls you back to him. Look at verse 4, the top of the page. Uh, or actually, verse 4 on the, on the right side of the page in chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Notice that says really intimate, sort of graphic language. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Jesus is saying, leave that lover and come back to me. And let me love you. Let me take care of you. And the question for us is, how do you even do that? Um, how do you begin to say, the things of the world that are enticing me to, to get comfort and pleasure, I'm going to walk away from that and walk towards Jesus. How do you do that? Uh, what I want us to leave with tonight going is, I just need to recognize that Babylon isn't who she says that she is. What God wants us to see in this passage is what Babylon is really like. That she looks beautiful and enticing and like she's going to make you happy and give you everything you want. But in the end, she wants to devour you. Interestingly, in verse 6, it says she, the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of the, of the martyrs of Jesus. She wants to kill you and she is headed for destruction. Um, a, a friend of mine who's a pastor who I really respect, he's older, he's more of like a father in the faith. Uh, he's told this story several times about 
a friend of his in his church that he was pastoring, he traveled a lot for work, had a normal family, you know, whatever we, the, sort of a normal American family. And he traveled a lot for work, and he would travel to the East Coast, and when he was there, he began to see a woman uh, in, on, on, the, on the West Coast, and um, eventually he kicked his wife and kids out of the house. And he said, I'm in love with this woman, and I own this house. Y'all need to get out. I'm going to bring her back home. She's going to live here with me. He kicked his wife and kids out. And, um, and uh, you know, my friends, their church, they took in his wife and kids and cared for them. And uh, it's kind of like, you're hearing that, you're like, dude, like, this must be some, like, amazing person that you're, like, going to literally throw everything away for her. But after a couple of months, um, they, they tried to reach out to him. He, he was like, look, I'm happy, finally. After a couple of months, this dude calls up my friend's pastor and says, look, I made a huge mistake. Um, it's like, okay, well, that would have been helpful, like, a couple months ago uh, <laughs> to sort of see that coming. Um, and, and he goes... Uh, I, I can't get rid of this person. Like, I've asked her to leave. She won't leave. So, so my friend, pastor, goes over, like, what's he going to do, right? He goes over there. He's, he, the guy meets him on the front lawn. He says, she's in the basement. He goes down to the basement. This woman that he'd flown over to live with him is sitting a foot from the TV, watching cartoons, with zero clothing on, um, eating SpaghettiOs out of the can, cold, and drinking straight from a fifth of Jack Daniels, okay? Um, when, he, when this guy, this is a true story. Like, don't let me lose you on an actual story. Um, and my, when this guy, it took it getting to this point for this guy to look and realize, I got everything I wanted, and it is not good. Um, he couldn't see the relationship for what it really was. And my question for you is, do you have enough distance from what you do every day of your life to realize um, that it is not going to fulfill you or give you the happiness that you think it's going to? That actually it's going to kill you and it's going to destroy everything. Just think about pleasure. Pleasure is great. God's made the world, made you as a person that can receive pleasure, and that's a beautiful thing. But pleasure that's only for yourself destroys pleasure. And I said this last week in kind of an awkward way. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Self-gratification is the great killer of sex. If you're getting sex so that you can feel good, um, it destroys sex because sex is mutual delighting in another person. It's two people delighting together. Um, having sex just for your self-gratification will kill a marriage. Getting stuff just for yourself, like acquiring an object just for yourself, destroys the enjoyment of that object because it gets boring, because it's just for you. A wonderful meal that you prepare or you pick up that's just what you want, but it's just for you, might be nice every once in a while, but you diminish the enjoyment of that meal when it's just for you because there's no one to share it with. Does that make sense? Um, All the blessings of this amazing and beautiful world exist to be mutually enjoyed with another. This is what they were created for. The world and the things of this world are not to be looked at, but looked through to see the God who is beautiful that's behind them. 
The thing that your heart really wants is what's behind that sex, what's behind that meal, what's behind that thing that you just bought. And St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in Thee. Um, When you are seeking pleasure, it's always restless until you find the God who created that pleasure. Everything God has made beautiful is to draw you near to the enjoyment of Him and to delight with Him. Pleasure for self destroys pleasure, but pleasure taken in God and shared with your neighbor gives life. Um, And then comfort. So that's pleasure to comfort. Um, This would be a little uncomfortable, I think. That's okay. Um, When's the last time that loving one of your friends really cost you something? And wasn't merely a way for you to have a comfortable relationship? I was just talking with somebody the other night and saying, like, until you really get into a fight and, like, have to exercise forgiveness, you're not really friends. Um, But I'm guilty of this, too. But some of you spend a lot of effort with your friends who aren't Christians, trying to convince them that you aren't whatever negative stereotype they have about Christians. Like, you spend, like, almost all your time convincing your non-Christian friends, I'm not like those kinds of Christians that believe those kinds of things. So what really happens is you just end up agreeing with them a lot and being like, yeah, 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 I agree with you. And then when there comes a point of, like, I can't agree with that, you just get super awkwardly quiet and don't say anything. Um, number one, they can tell, just FYI, um, they know that suddenly you aren't super passionate about what they were talking about. And number two, that means that the relationship is for you and not for them. Because what you're trying to get from that relationship is just for that person to tell you that you're the right kind of person. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is hard for me to say, so bear with me. Are you passionate about the issues that your non-Christian friends are passionate about? Um, Because the Bible has given you this strong conviction, like something like poverty or the oppressed or race, are are you passionate about that because the Bible has pushed you to that conviction and you can share it with someone that's not a Christian? Or are you passionate about it to gain some cultural and relational capital with that person? Because what you really want is the respect and acceptance of uh, your peers. Oh, look, it's uncomfortable to share Jesus with a person that doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> like, that is awkward and feels super weird sometimes. Just like it's uncomfortable to tell your friend, like, if you were sober and you could see, you would never go home with him. Um, but you knowing that she, what, you, where she's headed... Um, you know, if she, if she wasn't drunk, she wouldn't do that. And you're just calling her home. Like, just come home. It'll be better. And conversely, maybe you're like the follower of Jesus, that you like avoid meaningful relationships with people that aren't Christians and they're outside your bubble because you know they're going to challenge you and challenge the things that you believe about the Bible and about Jesus and about how to live your life. Because on this campus, you either fall into the Christians who keep their distance from all the sinful people or the Christians who are trying to convince everyone else that they're really just like them, plus Jesus. Um, both are just trying really hard to create comfort. And both are withholding love from the other person. Like, you're withholding meaningful love and care for them because it's about you. And my question is, where are our self-sacrificing, self-denying lovers of God and neighbor? Um, I want to be that with you. 
I want to learn whether you had to deny myself and sacrifice myself for, for my neighbor on this campus and because I love God. What would it look like for you to stop loving the world and actually start loving your roommate? To stop loving your professor accepting you and actually to start loving your professor? Um, or the awkward person on your floor that's like mysteriously not included, included in the group me? Um, look, <laughs> it's like, ah. Uh, I have to put that guy on my group me now. Um, look, when you draw close to Jesus, you might think that you're going to like start hating people or push people away. Um, but God created the world very good, and people are the center of that. So the closer you draw to Jesus, actually the more you will be able to properly enjoy the things of the world and enjoy the people that you know. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they've become so ineffective at this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Um, Aim at Jesus, loving Jesus and loving your neighbor, and you will get Jesus and your neighbor. And all the beautiful good things in the world. Worldliness promises happiness but it's heading for destruction and wants to take you with it. Jesus, however, went to destruction on the cross to rescue you from Babylon. My friend, he's standing in the, in the basement with this, this woman this, in this incredibly awkward moment. And he says to her, ma'am, um, here's a towel. Because uh, <laughs> you're not wearing clothes. Just didn't know if you knew that. Um, and he says, this is a ticket back to Sacramento. Um, we're putting you on a plane because it's time for you to go home. And Jesus has come to us through the cross to say, Babylon seems beautiful, but I'm sending her home and come back and live with me um, because it's worth it. May he give us grace to come home. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much. Um, that you call us out of darkness and into light. And we thank you that you can sort of wound us through your word and say, um, make us think differently about how we see the world. And Lord, would you help us to see that our comfort seeking and pleasure seeking is killing us and it's withholding love from others. And would you instead help us learn how to deny ourselves, to give ourselves up in love to you and love to our neighbor because you are a very, very good husband to us. Wherever we are tonight, would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.